a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. You can't see it, but I am, yes, bobbing my head to the beat. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And boy, are we going to engage in wrong think today. If someone asked you, if someone stopped you on the street and said, hey, uh, critical race theory, what exactly is that? Would you confidently give them an answer? Would you be able to, you know, even, I don't know, ballpark it? Well, you know, see, critical race theory is something that I encountered in a class on a college campus. I don't know if I would be able to do it. And yet, here it is, front and center, right there uh, in, in the national headlines, all because the Trump administration uh, pretty much put critical race theory on notice earlier this month. I don't know if you were following the story, but President Trump issued a directive to to federal departments saying, stop including these exercises in government training. In other words, stop training people on critical race theory. It's if you've ever had to sit through sensitivity training as part of, you know, a corporate mandated meeting. You've had a taste of it. But according to this article by Paul Bradford, this was published on intellectualtakeout.org, that critical race theory indoctrination, that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to woke government training. He says these types of trainings not only run counter to the fundamental beliefs for which our nation has stood since its inception, but they also engender division and resentment within the federal workforce. That's the president's words, actually, but... This is Paul Bradford's article. And so the Trump administration said, stop teaching this, or at least stop teaching it on the taxpayer's dime. You see the difference, right? It's not just a matter of, well, Trump is suppressing speech. He's censoring ideas that are are critical of him. Nope. He's saying if if you're going to peddle that crap, you do it on your own dime. You don't make the taxpayers pay for it. And government agencies like the Department of Education followed the directive's lead. Now they aim to root out this insidious indoctrination. The Education Department's memo singles out training that, quote, teaches, trains, or suggests the following. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar. Virtually all white people contribute to racism or benefit from racism. Critical race theory. White privilege. That the United States is inherently an inherently racist or evil country and that race or ethnicity, any race or ethnicity is inherently racist or evil or anti-American propaganda. Now, I just want that to sink in for a moment. I mean, those sound like some pretty inflammatory terms, right? And so if you're like, well, it's not fair of Trump to tell people they shouldn't be able to teach this. Remember, these are things that were being taught within Government departments on the taxpayer's dime. What's the benefit here? And if I can just digress for a moment, you know, I'm not a big fan of sensitivity training either. Obviously, right? You could use some hide. <laughs> you need a little bit more. But one of the reasons I'm not a fan of it is it it's just simply 
it's a captive audience for someone to to peddle whatever their ideology happens to be that may be in fashion at the moment. It's a little bit troubling. In fact, it's really troubling. And the biggest problem that I have with it is uh, the idea that, uh, you know, you have to sit here and you have to be told, you, sir, are a racist or you are this or you are that. And it's it's bothersome enough for someone to sit there and thump their finger into your chest and tell you this. It's another thing when you have to do this on condition of employment. Do you remember when was it? Uh, I think it was Hurricane Katrina. It may have been 15 years ago. Not like this is a new Thing This didn't just crop up, you know, with the whole social justice movement. It's been building for a long time. There were emergency responders, and I'm pretty sure it was Hurricane Katrina. Remember the massive storm that wrecked so much of the Gulf Coast and, and caused so much suffering in and around New Orleans? And so here are, you know, rescuers and people coming, relief workers, Red Cross workers, all coming to help relieve people's suffering but they would not be allowed to go to their stations to go and help people until they first sat down and went through a mandatory sensitivity training course. I mean, time counts, right? Now, these people are starving. These people are trapped in their attic. But here, I want you to sit down. I'm going to show you a PowerPoint presentation on why you should never misgender anyone or <laughs> whatever, whatever it is or whatever it was then. I think it's, it's gotten a lot, uh, a lot more uh, meticulous and, and a lot more scripted over the last 15 years. Now, interestingly enough, this article in, in, on intellectualtakeout.org by Paul Bradford says... For President Trump to issue this directive saying stop teaching or disseminating this information in federal departments, he says that's a strong and correct move. In fact, researcher Christopher Rufo has done a phenomenal job exposing these racist anti-American teachings. Critical race theory, he says, has no place in our government and it's commendable that the president is doing something about it. But here's the kicker. He says it must be understood this only scratches the surface of the problem. These employees will still learn about the absolute necessity of diversity and inclusion. They may not hear the worst excesses that Rufo's exposed, but they will be taught why they must strive to make their agency more politically correct. So we'll come back to that in a few moments. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Brian. Appreciate you taking my call. Always appreciate your uh, thought-provoking uh, program, and also um, um, it, us wrong thinkers. How did you put it? <laughs> us, uh, <laughs> you are a fellow wrong that. thinker, Ray. I'm I'm glad to yes. have you in our midst. Yes, thank you, thank you. Now, um, you know, an extreme example is, you know, what right does a government organization have a right to teach a philosophy? What if they taught? A religion, any one of the religions, or, or say Socrates or Plato or different philosophies, and say you will adhere to, you know, living this philosophy. Well, whatever happened to freedom of choice? I mean, religion. We can go to whatever religion we want to, and choose to accept that philosophy and choose to live by it, or go to another religion or another organization that that is set up according to their philosophy and we can choose 
you know, um, that th- this is outrageous. You know, it's outrageous to to teach a philosophy. Well, go around the world. If if any government taught a philosophy of what the the you know higher ups, the the people running the thing, thought this is how we should think in our country, and this is how we should think in, in the within this government program. I mean, that's taken away our our own conscience, the the, the right to live by our conscience, our right for us to choose, you know, right and wrong, as long as we're not, you know, hurting anybody. That this is just outrageous. I, I'm with you. I, and and to me, the big I takeaway guess. here is that's the tip of the iceberg. In other words, there's wow. still diversity and inclusion training that is still very much a part of these these federal programs, but uh, the the critical race theory component which is especially corrosive and especially divisive. That's what the president is saying. Stop teaching that. But, but you're still going to get a good dose of, you know, political correctness, just watered down a little bit. Well, I heard that they, they yell in people's face and they go and they, they do public shaming in this program. Um, I was not aware of that for, for the, the program. I mean, I, I see Black Lives Matter activists doing that, you know, people sitting, you know, in a restaurant patio or something. Um, I, I see that kind of approach, kind of reminiscent of the little uh, the little red guards of, of Chairman Mao going out there and, and enforcing pureness in the party ideology. But um, at any rate, you know, if, if you if you have a government job, I promise you've had to sit through some form of this kind of training. Even when we raise our kids, you know, we we have the right to raise them with what philosophy we want to teach them up to 18. And then they have the right to choose what philosophy they want to live life by. That for, for, you know, when when you're on a job and you're being forced to accept a certain philosophy, whether you agree with it or not, I mean, this this is thought police. This is reprogramming. This, This is... This is 1984. This is so outrageous. This is not America. Yep. I'm, I'm with you, Ray. I'm not a big fan of the whole woke culture. Corporate America has certainly gotten the memo, and they're a big part of it. But uh, how terrible would it be to be a government employee and have to, to put up with this? Thanks for the call, Ray. We're going to take a quick break. 801-331-8113. We'll come back to this article from intellectualtakeout.org. Be happy to take more of your calls as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Don't forget that our show is brought to you by fantastic sponsors like the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. John Staples has been a good friend of mine for many, many years, and I would not hesitate to recommend him to you when it comes to handling all the details and the paperwork on what's, for most of us, going to be the biggest purchase of our lives, that being a home. So if you are looking to secure a home loan, trying to get pre-qualified for that matter, maybe you want to refinance your existing home loan, he's the guy I would send you to. John is extremely knowledgeable. He and his wife, Heather, are superstars for the Patriot Home Mortgage Team, which, by the way, has uh, has operations in 23 different states. Yeah, they started small, but they are making a splash, 
and they have the uh, expertise, they have the experience, but most of all, they have the ethics to do the job that you need done and get it done quickly and effectively. Patriot Home Mortgage. Seriously, that's a lot of money to deal with, right? Unless, uh, unless you're buying a cardboard box under the overpass. Uh, can you get a mortgage on one of those? Asking for a friend. Anyway, for your home loan, whether it's a refinance or new home loan, talk to my friends at Patriot Home Mortgage. The Staples-Turner team, their website is staplesmortgage.com. Just like it sounds, staplesmortgage.com. So I'm sharing this article from intellectualtakeout.org from Paul Bradford about how critical race theory is just the tip of woke government training. Look, for most of us, those of us who don't work within a government institution, it may seem like just kind of an abstract academic thing. Yeah, I heard about it, but I've really never been through it. But for people within the system, it's a, it's a daily part of their lives. They have to attend meetings. And this diversity and inclusion training continues, even though the president has said, look, there's no need, you know, to be disseminating this critical race theory stuff, especially the most uh, the most divisive stuff. Virtually all white people either contribute to racism or benefit from it, or they all have white privilege or the United States is inherently racist or evil or any race, uh, any race of, or ethnicity is inherently racist or evil. That doesn't help. That just seems to create division where there might have been some minor disagreements before, if at all. And that turns it into full-blown division. Now consider some of the different examples of diversity and inclusion training offered by government agencies. The Department of Veterans Affairs training on the subject. In its standard PowerPoint, it criticizes the idea of the American melting pot and tells Americans to think of America as a vegetable soup instead. It supports resistance to assimilation with one bullet point declaring, quote, members of various cultural groups may not want to be assimilated. They want their tastes, looks, and textures to remain whole. Now, the PowerPoint extols diversity as the greatest thing ever, claiming there is a business, economic, and human imperative for this trait. It says, diverse teams are more creative and perform better in problem-solving than homogenous teams. It also argues the human costs of intolerance to diversity is incalculable. Now, the training curiously blames the 1986 Challenger disaster on NASA's lack of diversity. The presentation also presents a case where an employee is supposed to overlook a Costa Rican worker's tardiness and lack of apology due to cultural differences. So this is still less, less outrageous than teaching employees, hey, all whites are racist or you should hate them or teach whites to hate themselves. But it's still classic left-wing indoctrination. Now, some departments are even keeping critical race theory training and just simply changing the name. For instance, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a friend of the people if there ever was one, he says sarcastically, they are uh, teaching a series that demands white employees acknowledge their privilege and claims America was founded on white supremacy. Now, thankfully, the administration announced the session was canceled soon after it was exposed, but it's a pretty safe bet. There's probably there are probably more uh, organizations or more trainings like that skirting the president's directive. In this case, uh, the author of this piece says sources tell him the proposed directive was supposed to target all diversity training. That would make perfect sense since much of the material and coursework also encourages white privilege checking and anti-American views. 
But administration officials, fearful of a backlash, scrapped this expansive plan in favor of one more narrow in its aim at critical race theory training. Now, he says, of course, it's good that government employees will no longer be subjected to the more radical versions of diversity training. White employees won't be told directly that they're racist and that they need to check their white privilege. They probably also won't be told that America was founded on white supremacy and racial exploitation. But the sad truth is the directive does not eradicate the woke rot within our government. The new plan merely restores the government's level of indoctrination back to what it was under Barack Obama. And sadly, this training isn't just limited to the government. Nearly every corporation imposes some form of this indoctrination on their employees. Some corporations are implementing the radical anti-white training the administration is scrapping for government employees. If I could just ask this as a quick aside, why? Where, Where did this come from? Or are we really expected to believe with a straight face that, yes, all these many years this has just been lurking under the surface, unseen except by a few, with these keen senses of of, uh, vision and, and perception that the rest of us somehow lack, no doubt because we're too blinded by our inherent privilege and racism. I don't buy it. To me, it just sounds like people promoting and creating conflict where there was no conflict before. Anyway, that's my opinion. 801-331-8113 if you would like to weigh in. Democrats, by the way, also have legislation targeting private companies to make sure they comply with the diversity cult. The Promoting Diversity and Inclusion Act of 2019 is one example. That bill would rate financial institutions based on how much they promote diversity and inclusion, essentially making this trait equivalent to a bank's assets. When you have power, you have to use it, said bill sponsor, Representative Al Green, Democrat from Texas. We have the power. Regulations may be the thing to do. I think the carrot was a good idea, but having heard some things today, I think we have to move to the stick. That's regulations. Let me just translate that for you. If we can't persuade you, we will force you. Oh, and the unspoken addendum is because we know what's best. Now shut up and do what you're told. Move to the stick is a good summary for how government controlled entirely by Democrats will promote diversity. Now, Trump can counter this dystopian vision with a more aggressive attack on diversity and inclusion training. Paul Bradford writes, America is a meritocracy that should not prize workers based on skin color. It should focus on training the best workers to do their jobs effectively. Diversity training shifts employee and employer focus toward left-wing imperatives and away from getting the job done right. Can you see that? I mean, would you disagree with that? I think that's a fair assessment. It's less about, hey, doing the best job that you can, doing the job correctly, and more about, are you thinking the right thoughts while you do this job at an acceptable level? Which seems kind of pushy, if I could be so bold. Paul Bradford, he doesn't worry about being pushy or bold. He just says it's anti-American and it's a waste of resources. In the words of our president, this is a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue. Now, there's a great follow up on this, and I'm going to include this in the show notes. I shared this on Facebook the other day. President Trump's ban on critical race theory explained. This is from the, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. Three heavy hitters on this one. Dan Sanchez, Tyler Brandt, and Brad Palumbo, all of whom are 
excellent analysts, writers, commentators in their own right. So when they put that considerable brain power together, uh, they have a very comprehensive look at what the executive memo was about, what the administration is doing, why it's a welcome move, and why there's much more to this than simply politicization and censorship. But the media, if it's talking about it at all, is very likely portraying it as well. This is just more examples of the president being a mean, awful bully whom you should never have voted for and should never vote for again. By the way, we're going to come back to that in a few moments. saw a post on Facebook earlier today that uh, really caught my attention, only because I tend to relate to it. Stay with us, please. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to call in. If you're catching the podcast, I'm so sorry. But you'll uh, you'll have to you could drop us a line actually if you go to the com. There is a wonderful feature there you can actually drop me a message if you subscribe to the podcast. At least on the Anchor platform, Anchor FM, you can leave me a voicemail. I know it's not the same as you and I sitting and talking on the phone like we used to do when we were teenagers, right? But it's a pretty close approximation, and I'd love to hear from you. Again, you can check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I want to come back to an article here again. This is from uh, President Trump's ban on critical race theory. This is republished on Intellectual Takeout. It was originally published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And three heavy hitters from Fee tackling this. Dan Sanchez, Tyler Brandt, and also Brad Palumbo. Now, they talk about the executive memo itself, why the president wrote it, and then uh, there's, there's kind of this, this expose that, uh, that has been brought up. And I'm going to bring you a quote here from uh, Office of Management and Budget Director Russ Vaught, who wrote, It has come to the president's attention that executive branch agencies have spent millions of taxpayer dollars to date training program, training, in quotation marks, program government workers uh, to believe divisive anti-American propaganda. Employees across the executive branch have been required to attend trainings where they are told that virtually all white people contribute to racism or where they are required to say that they benefit from racism. According to press reports, in some cases, these trainings have further claimed that there's racism embedded in the belief that America is the land of opportunity or the belief that the most qualified person should receive a job. So when the president uh, gave this order, it instructed federal agencies to identify and then eliminate any contracts or spending that train employees in critical race theory, white privilege, or any other training or propaganda effort that teaches or suggests that the United States is an inherently racist or evil country, or that any race or ethnicity is inherently racist or evil. Now, look, I'm not going to pretend that, uh, hey, you know, the United States is above question, because we have some pretty ugly black marks on our our history. Some some really, there were some ugly things that were done. Frankly, I think if you if you want to talk about somebody who would have a grievance, talk to the American Indians. I don't think they were dealt with very fairly, but they were most certainly dealt with by our government. Having said that, 
there is a great deal of good that cannot be discounted just because human beings were being human beings and, and made some horrible decisions. And I would further say that uh, the, the fact that those, those things, things like the Trail of Tears are not the norm today. You would, uh, you know, the worst criticism I think I could levy at our, at our current government would be the way it conducts foreign policy. I'm sorry, but I think that uh, I think the, the the foreign policy of interventionism has actually spread a lot of misery and a lot of death and destruction where it wasn't really necessary, where it wasn't protecting American lives, liberty or property. And we can disagree on that. I'm not saying you have to think that, too. I just it doesn't square with with the ideas of of what a, a good and moral nation would do in terms of its conduct towards other nations. There's a very selective set of ethics that seems to come into play here. Having said that. I'll confess, I think America is a I think America is a very blessed land. As in, I think it's blessed by God. And it's not because it's perfect, and it's not because everyone here is better than everybody else. I just believe that there, there was a great promise and great potential that was realized here. Can you think of another society or another uh, nation of people who have enjoyed a greater degree of freedom and prosperity than we have? Notwithstanding, you know, the mistakes that have been made. I can't think of one that's had such a stable form of government for as long as we have. Although it's looking a little shaky these days uh, for obvious reasons. Now, if you're wondering, how did it come to the president's attention that this uh, critical race theory was being taught? Well, the president is known to be a viewer of Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. And apparently days before that memo was issued, Carlson had on journalist Christopher Rufo. We talked about him in the last couple segments to discuss his multiple reports uncovering the extent to which critical race theory was being used in federal training programs. For example, Sam Dorman for the Fox News website wrote, Rufo claimed the Treasury Department recently hired a diversity trainer who said the U.S. was a fundamentally white supremacist country and that white people upheld the system of racism in the nation. In another case, which Rufo discussed with Carlson last month, Sandia National Laboratories, which designs nuclear weapons, sent its white male executives to a mandatory training in which they, according to Rufo, wrote letters apologizing to women and people of color. Now, of course, this has sparked serious debate. But is the president just being mean? Is he just exercising privilege? CNN's Brian Stelter, uh, as well as Rufo himself, say they traced uh, Trump's decision directly to the independent investigative journalist self-proclaimed one-man war on critical race theory, of which the recent Carlson appearance was just uh, the latest salvo. Selter characterized Trump's move as a reactionary attack on the current national reckoning on race. Oh, is that what that is? I didn't realize it was a reckoning. I thought all that uh, lining up and threatening people if they don't do the black power salute or, you know, screaming in their faces or taking their food away or turning their tables over. I, I thought that was something other than a reckoning. But hey. You know, call it what you will. Stelter cited the Washington Post's claim that racial and diversity awareness trainings are essential steps in helping rectify the pervasive racial inequities in American society, including those perpetuated by the federal government. So which is it? 
Is it divisive and toxic, or is it rectifying and anti-racist to this critical race theory? I'll encourage you, read the, read the report for yourself again. These, uh, these wonderful journalists actually do a very good job of spelling out the intellectual ancestry of critical race theory, which is a branch of critical theory, which started as an academic movement back in the 30s. That critical theory, by the way, has its roots in Marxism in that it was developed by members of the Marxist Frankfurt School. And they do a very good job of, collect, of connecting the dots and showing you where this stems from, you know, where it springs from just flat-out Marxism. I guess traditional Marxists, uh, you know, they, they claim that all capitalists benefit from the zero-sum exploitation of workers. And in the same way, Critical race theory diversity trainers require white trainees to admit you benefit from racism. Marxism demonized capitalists. Critical race theory vilifies white people. Both try to foment resentment, envy, and a victimhood complex among the oppressed classes they claim to champion. Traditional Marxists insisted the bourgeois thoughts were inescapably conditioned by class interest. In the same way, Critical race theory trainers push the notion that virtually all white people contribute to racism as a result of their whiteness. I don't know about you, but that that really seems like a a pretty big blanket statement to be throwing out there. So I would recommend read the article. It's linked in the show notes. You might learn something. Maybe you'll agree. Maybe you'll disagree. I'm leaving that up to you. Here's an interesting thought. Are you more concerned about the political players or the political followers in this upcoming election? The reason I ask is a friend of mine posted something on on Facebook a couple of days ago. This is what he posted. He said, the shameless dishonesty of the left has driven me into the arms of the Trump camp. And I'm telling you, you can't post anything Trump related on Facebook without uh, setting off, you know, a hornet's nest of opinion and invective and people, they get really riled up. And people were like, oh, sure, yeah, he's a beacon of truth. He's a light on a hill. I mean, they're, they're like, you know, sure, you probably end your, your prayers in his name. Some telling him, you were already a Trump supporter. Although this friend pointed out, hey, I did not vote for him in 2016. He says, I don't want to argue. I just, I've watched press conferences on live feed and then witnessed the complete crap the networks say afterwards. And it's not just once or twice. It's every single time. And I have to admit, I find myself in a very similar mindset to what my friend is describing here. I will never be mistaken for a Trump fanboy. But at the same time, he has not been the monster we were assured that he would be. And the harder his critics have raged and schemed to invalidate his election, the more clear it becomes that we can't trust these people with any degree of power whatsoever. I see what they're willing to do. I see the lives they're willing to destroy. Yeah. Trusting them with power would be a huge mistake. Now, Trump leaves a lot to be desired. I think that's true of almost any politician you can point to. But based on his actions of the last four years, I don't see him lusting for power like his opposition is lusting for power. So I didn't willingly walk into his corner. I've been pushed there by fanatics who absolutely will not leave me in peace. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. So, yeah, in the last segment, I don't know, maybe I painted myself into a corner, but I have, uh, I've just openly and publicly admitted I'm finding myself in Trump's corner as, as the election approaches. And it's not because I really think he's going to solve all our problems. He really is. Um, I, I don't believe we will have a political savior. I don't think it's it's possible. But I look at the alternative and I look at the lengths that, that some people, and this is not just Democrats, but there are Republicans, establishment Republicans too, the lengths that they're willing to go to to try to consolidate control and power over the rest of us. Yeah, I, I feel like there has to be some pushback there. And if Trump is the guy who's going to do it, then he's the guy who's going to be that. Uh, he's going to be the, the one pushing back and, and causing that friction against them. We are so screwed. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to be an optimist here, but you, know, you, you just we don't have a lot of good choices. But giving people power who want to ruthlessly micromanage every aspect of your life versus a guy who is pushy and arrogant and, uh, you know, maybe has a minor God complex himself. I'm going to go I'm going to go with the one who isn't trying to control every aspect of my life. Knock on wood. It's been an interesting year. I suspect it's only going to get more interesting. By the way, Kent McManigal always has a solid take on stuff, and he talks about dangerous followers in his latest column. This was published on everythingvoluntary.com. He says, I don't need a president, so I don't support presidential candidates. However, from observation, he says, I have a suspicion about the future based on how I expect the followers of those candidates to behave in the case of a loss or a win. He says, I believe a Trump win in the upcoming election would be safer for me personally than a Biden win. Now, he admits that's just based on feelings, and I could well be wrong. I hope I'm not, since I also believe Trump will win. Notice how I said I believe all of the above, not think or know. He says, I believe if Trump wins, the other side will riot and do its best to destroy everything it can as fast as it can. But he says, since I'm far from any big cities with their largely disarmed populations, at least among the less aggressive residents, I'm not scared for my own safety if and when this happens. He says, I also believe the riots will be quashed by armed suburbanites before they could reach me. And since I'm in a backwater off any beaten path, it would be hard for them to get to me unless it was intentional. He says, I see in the anti-Trumpers a mob with a willingness to hurt and kill people they don't believe are fully on their side. And he says, and I'm not. On the other hand, he says, I don't believe Trump supporters would burn cities if Kamala Harris in the person of Joe Biden wins. They'll probably be angry and claim it wasn't a legitimate election, as if that's even a thing. If Harris Biden's more radical supporters are able to influence them and they must believe that they'll be able to, he says, I'll be personally harmed by the anti-gun legislation they'll push through more so than Trump's anti-gun legislation, evil as it was, managed to hurt me. He says, I don't see a willingness among Trump supporters to attack people who aren't loudly siding with others with the others and getting in their faces. So I don't believe they would be much of a threat to me. Even if they know I'm not on their side, I've sat through the pledge to the holy pole quilt without participating. And though I got a few dirty looks, 
no one threatened me as I've seen on video happen to people who were ordered by an angry mob to raise a fist and declare Black Lives Matter. So again, I feel safer with a Trump win than with a Biden win. Now, Kent McManigal says it could just be my bias speaking. I've spent more of my life around conservatives, and even when they disagree with me, it hasn't gone as badly as the few times I've disagreed with progressives to their faces. He says, I don't believe I was the critical variable, although I admit I usually feel more sympathy towards misguided right statists than I do for equally misguided left statists. But he says, I don't feel as strongly about the election this time around since I haven't had decades of personal loathing for Joe Biden like I had for Hillary Clinton. And even then, I didn't prefer Trump enough to vote against Hillary. Of course, if the social unrest gets bad enough, whoever the anointed ruler turns out to be, none of us will be immune. How much damage will sustain remains to be seen. Interesting times fueled by politics, which makes people stupid. Now, I don't know if you agree or disagree with Kent's take there, but I think that's a pretty that's a pretty solid take. And I think probably more people feel that, you know, I'm just I'm trapped. What do I do? I don't want to go out there and impose my wants or my viewpoint on everybody. I just want to be left alone. But there is clearly a contingent of people who will not leave us alone. At some point, I guess we, we have to push back. That point's going to be different for each one of us. All right, you ready to talk about something fun, something uplifting? Let's end on a very positive note today. Let's talk about why we cook. I jokingly talk about how cooking with fire is one of my love languages. And yet, I, I have to admit, I, I'm not... I'm not joking all that much when I say that. It gives me great satisfaction to throw something on my pit barrel cooker. They're not paying me to endorse them, but I'll endorse them anyways because they're just wonderful people. And I love to share it with friends, with coworkers, with family. There is something very, very satisfying in seeing the happiness that people get in eating something tantalizing that was cooked on my pit barrel cooker. I feel good about it, so I, I get a little self-esteem boost when I cook. Anders Koskinen, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, writes about how the COVID-19 pandemic has given Americans an unexpected amount of unstructured, home-based leisure time. Prohibited from attending our favorite sporting events or concerts or fireworks shows, even traditional school, he says the need for something to fill that time grows as the days stretch into weeks and months. New hobbies are proliferating as people find ways to connect and amuse themselves and their loved ones. And he says, the one I find most satisfying is home cooking. Sharing these newfound culinary gifts with those you love and watching the looks of delight spread across their faces as they dig into your hard work is a huge draw for those who love to cook. But he says, there are several other reasons why good old-fashioned home cooking is a value-added hobby. Number one, showing love. He said homemade food is, in his opinion, one of the best ways you can show someone that you love them. It's an act of service resulting in a delicious gift tailored to friend or relative's tastes. Spending an hour or two or three or four or more, depending on what you're making, can really blow someone away, especially if they aren't used to home cooking. My wife describes herself as feeling so pampered when I start cooking after work. She gets the chance to unwind and tend to things she'd rather be doing while I get the deep satisfaction of seeing her enjoy a fresh handmade meal. Her standard comfort food is mac and cheese. She fell in love with it even more when she got the homemade variety. Secondly, he says cooking is a family affair. 
He says his parents do tons of home cooking. And he says mom is now back on a huge kick of rediscovering old favorites, trying out new recipes and experimenting over and over again to perfect certain dishes. This shared love of cooking spawns a lot of fun conversations between the two of us. And he says more than that, though, the beloved recipes from my childhood are now mainstays in my own expanding cookbook. Just as my parents brought their favorite recipes into their home, applesauce jello, a Thanksgiving staple, is one such recipe that my mom fondly remembers from her grandparents. And he says, I'm doing the same, creating and maintaining a family heritage. Number three, food makes an event. At a Milwaukee Brewers baseball game, he says, I discovered a new food, brachos. Nachos with all the fixings with bratwurst meat taking the place of traditional seasoned ground beef. Soon after my discovery, brachos made their debut at the debut at the Koskinen Family Packer Game Day Smorgasbord. Yep, each game day at my parents' house is a veritable buffet of ballpark foods and at reasonable prices. For the non-sports fans, every birthday must be accompanied by cake or pie if you share his mom's preference. And he made a chocolate cake that was a hit with his in-laws. He now refers to it as the Doran family birthday cake. After all, as Julia Child said, a party without a cake is just a meeting. Then there are ethnic connections. Food is one of the easiest ways to connect with any culture. And for him, it's an especially important way to relate to his own heritage. His family delights in putting German and Finnish dishes on the table and connecting over their origins and traditions that brought them from Europe to America. Sauerbraten, Riska, and... Panukaku. I don't know if I'm saying that right. There are favorite examples of this. Finally, there's the aspect of working with your hands. See, for men, there's deep satisfaction in manual labor. And he says, I'm slowly getting better at being a handyman with tools and wood and car repairs. But manual labor definitely includes the workout of kneading bread dough. He says, my go-to for this arm is a pulla a Finnish sweetbread made with cardamom. While my KitchenAid stands in for elbow grease sometimes, he says there's a wonderful feeling of making something to eat by burning off the calories you'll consume later. Even as COVID-19 has isolated us from friends and family outside the house, Anders Koskinen says those blessed with family under one roof have surely grown closer. Home-cooked meals around a shared dinner time are one blessing of this pandemic. And he says we need to count all of those we possibly can. I completely agree. This is The Brian Hyde Show.